Hello and welcome to Register, the podcast about architecture and landscape from the Kingston School of Art in London. My name is Andrew Clancy. Before introducing this episode, I just wanted to take a few minutes to chat with you about a new initiative from Register that we would love to have some support for. Um, We're going to start publishing books and we've got quite an ambitious programme planned out for the next number of years. These books are going to be hybrid things. Some are going to be uh, dissemination of some extraordinary student research here. Others are going to be the work of colleagues here in the school. And the first book we're bringing out is transcribed, edited and worked up interviews from this podcast series, richly illustrated uh, with the work from the architects involved. And it would be great if you're interested in this and if you support what we do and you can spare a few quid if you could support this. There's a link in the description to this podcast to the Kingston crowdfunding site, which is raising the monies for this first book, which is well underway to being fully funded and will probably be printed in April and sent around to you. I think what we're trying to do with Register in Kingston is to surface and make visible the kind of normal, human, nuanced conversations that lie at the heart of our school. It's a school that loves architecture and loves the contingency associated with it. And we're hoping with these series of books that we're going to be doing to kind of make space on a more considered level for deep investigations of various buildings, the work of architects and broader cultural conversations around our subject. This book's programme has been led by the Register team most most pertinently, I think it's worthy of saying that Matt Wells and Matt Phillips have been great as part of this and Laura Evans uh, instrumental also. And so my thanks to all of them as ever for their tireless endeavour, which is done uh, more out of love than anything else and is very much appreciated by all in Kingston. Do uh, click on the link, uh, check out the crowdfunder and if it's something you're interested in, please do support us if you can. It would mean a lot to us to be able to raise the cost of this book through advanced sales and to start this publishing programme on a strong footing. If you can't, of course, we will continue to provide you with these podcasts and more in the years ahead. And so on with the podcast. Uh, In this episode, Laura Evans and Matt Wells, both of Register, interview Will Burgess and Stephen Davies of 3144 Architects. Laura Evans is a tutor here in Kingston and a partner in Howland Evans Architects, uh, whose work is worth checking out while Matt Wells is also a lecturer here and in ETH Zurich. 3144 is led by both Will and Stephen. Their name comes from the dial codes for both Holland and from London, and this internationalism reflects their attitude in architecture more generally, tracing clear threads uh, both in their treatment of decoration and of typology from their London context. They also draw references from across our continent, particularly in how they engage with history and figuration in their work. Really an ongoing thesis which has started on a number of extraordinarily tight and complex uh, London sites uh, and then is growing both in scale and complexity in the last few years. I mean, Will is no stranger to us here in Kingston, as himself and Kate Nicklin, who's who's an associate with 3144, run a thesis unit in third year here as part of our undergraduate school. And it's remarkable seeing the consistency of the work of their unit and its research agendas with the kind of uh, work, the evolving work of 3144. There's a continual engagement with the nature of the facade as a cultural act within architecture and the idea of architectural language as having some kind of contextual and social reading. 
And at the same time, there's a very human investigation of the social structures and the physical structures of the city in which they work. I think one of the things that's really remarkable about 3144, and it, I mean, it shouldn't be remarkable, should it? But the fact that they, they don't work late hours, they refuse to work weekends, they don't and uh, ever have unpaid internships or anything like that. And I think there's something that we have to have a conversation about is about the ethical construct of our discipline. There's so many architects who I admire greatly, but I would have questions over their attitude to employment. And I think it is uh, really wonderful to see a practice making critical work, making so within uh, a 40-hour week, paying their staff well and treating them with dignity and seeing clear evidence, therefore, that one doesn't need to have to play the game of sweatshop architecture to produce work that might have some meaning. And I think this part of the conversation is one that I was very interested in, which is just the sheer, just the care that Will and Stephen bring to the culture of their office, its evolving conversation, and how they see teaching and research as a means to move that conversation forward critically. I do hope you enjoy the podcast. So I'd like to uh, welcome Will and Steve from 3144 Architects um, here to join us today at Kingston School of Art. Um, Will and Steve have been known to the school for a very long time, um, involved through teaching particularly, and it's kind of a nice moment for us all to be doing this because as we sit here outside, the students are preparing for the end of your show, so it's this wonderful moment where we it's get to chaos. see what everyone's been up to, it's chaos, but it's right? chaos at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so thanks both very much for joining us. Um, no problem. It's, uh, Steve's been sweeping the floor this morning. I just needed to get involved. <laughs> <laughs> I just couldn't no, stand I around and look. No, I know, it's terrible, isn't it? Yeah, you can't yeah. just watch the no. labour happening. Beyond no. the call of duty. But <laughs> Got to be <laughs> Very impressive. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mind telling people what to do. <laughs> it's, it's easier that way. But getting your hands dirty. This is the role of the architect, telling people what to do, isn't it? Are we recording? We are recording. <laughs> recording that, yeah. It's kind of telling people what to do without actually revealing that you're <laughs> trying to tell them what to do, isn't it? We're not allowed to actually be direct and forceful and implement things. It has to all be by stealth and accident, or seemingly, I think. Yeah, I think that's true. I think the profession has, has changed so much that actually now we're really removed from that kind of a role. The big decisions and clear direction. Most of our planning meetings, I feel like we're we're trying to set it up so it seems like an inevitability as a kind of set of decisions that have been made, so they don't actually feel like you're kind of willing something upon their, their kind there's of, only their one right answer. Yeah, mm. and you're providing it. Mm. So, and there's a kind of there are a number of things that you're trying to test maybe in the earlier stages, and then when you go to present that, the way you communicate it. I mean, you can be talking about one item, but it may only be like one of ten things that you kind of got to come away from the meeting with some sort of direction on, because it's, you know, we're preparing a proposal and we're talking about things extensively in the studio, and then you go and you get 45 minutes, and it's all a bit like being back at the crit. (laughs) But you have to kind of communicate that and present the idea and present why why we've spent the time and why we've arrived at these decisions and sometimes you can you're sometimes at the mercy of the people at the other side of the table um, and just getting them engaged in the process I mean maybe they've already had two or three meetings that day and 
you know, it's like, oh, it's another proposal. So I feel like this is a bit of a punchy, dour start. I'm supposed to talk about the fun days when we're at college. Well, we get, well I was just going to bring us to that because Stephen, Stephen mentioned the crit. And I thought that was really interesting because one of the conversations that we had um, examining the first year of work recently um, was that, to some extent, architectural education is a kind of, it's play, it's an imaginary version of a real-life situation whereas the tutor you're somewhere between the client or you know any other number of external parties um, and the student plays the role that the architect plays and I think certainly in the early stages the students don't realize that they are already operating in quite a real situation Mm -hmm. which is set up by us and this is completely the case in these kinds of meetings you know, you, I remember wondering as a student, you know, why do I have to go through this sort of cruel experience that is the crit? Oh no, it's real life. Yes, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I think, I mean, we always try and, I mean, I teach with Kate, obviously Kate Nicklin, who's an associate at our practice. Um, Steve has, did come in as a critic this year, didn't you? But, yeah, um, but don't, don't, I don't teach, you know, don't kind of in that you capacity. Do, you know, I mean, you're kind of used to. I used to. Yeah. But, I mean, we try and set up our teaching studio in that way because it's so closely related to our practice. So we try and set our students awkward kind of predicaments that we find ourselves in. So last year we cited them next to Whitechapel Bell Foundry. So they were kind of remaking a city block that we were already working on because the Bell Foundry is one of our current projects. This year... Um, along a kind of similar vein where we find we're as architects we're in this slightly awkward position where we're always some of quite a bit of our work is on the kind of city fringe it's that bit of London which is still being remade again and again so we um, because there are elements of it large pieces of it which almost feel untouchable I suppose so we deliberately set the kind of city fringe project so they'd actually have to face this kind of slightly upsetting thing about am I going to demolish that really big building because my client has asked me to and actually they think they can get six more floors and it can be more efficient and we yeah maybe that's a bit mean on them but we quite like them to actually kind of think how big is that building already and what are you replacing it with and so I think we teach a kind of dry studio in terms of a starting point we then try and push them to get kind of really personal about the work and their response but yeah, we like setting those kind of practice predicaments, the stuff that we have to face, we feel that they should start thinking about now. It's not all designing beautiful university faculties in Italian valleys somewhere or a spa in the Alps or something. It's like we... Um, I'll get some commercial space in there. Watching that's a gross. We did ask them to sort of think about, well, if you really want to do this... Um, kind of gallery is there an enabling kind of project which is part of your building Mm. part of your program because the site can accommodate these things and these perhaps these are the kind of future kind of uh, characters of cities where Prada might own every single art gallery of any note who knows but I think it's kind of um, it's interesting to kind of get them thinking about that not just thinking about a beautiful sequence from their treatment room to their (laughs) cold water plunge pool through to their kind of outdoor warm water spa but to actually really think about sort of tough things that they're going to you know they're going to be out there next year they're going to be part ones hearing lots of frustrated swearing and difficult yeah. phone calls about oh how are we going to present this to the planning authority well, uh, or and there's a there's a there is a continuity then you know when you move into practice it's not like 
you've just gone on the off the diving board it is that okay so there are things that were happening last year okay and there are certain di- kind of discussions and for us and it's only why i mentioned previously that i'm not teaching like you know kate and willow weekly in you know with the students because i think from my point of view and and, and the studio our studio our office is that those discussions come back so we then talk about that more so we are looking at things like net to gross and we're doing all that as you know you got that dpc in the right place but we're also looking at the language of the facade and we're looking at kind of the spatial experience and from my point of view and i think the guys in our, in, our, in our office is it really does start to kind of layer up that discussion and you're starting to think about things on you know kind of different levels at different kind of stages and I think that has made it, especially on some of the you know last I think couple of years. It's been really key to our practice in the last few years. The fact that mm. we've talked as well, um, and like most things, I started teaching by accident. We have a practice slightly by accident. It isn't something. wasn't some big strategic thing, but I would absolutely hold on to it now. Yeah. Um, sorry, Kingston, I'm going to be hard to get rid of. But, um, <laughs> but uh, I, yeah, I, I think it, it, it's become so essential, and I guess lots of the practices that we really respect then there's a lot of teaching done by those practices um, at lots of different levels. So the kind of perhaps the practice principles, but also the kind of the team kind of in and around them. And I think it is, it's key to the kind of culture. I think it's too easy as a practice to kind of think, oh, we sort of do this and it seems to be popular. So we'll carry on doing this. And in five or 10 years time, you find actually that you're not that relevant anymore and I think teaching is a really good kind of stick to kind of beat yourself with that your students ask you difficult questions you're asked to articulate difficult situations about becoming an architect you're constantly in this kind of slight um, slight turmoil with the profession and where it's going but I think it's, it's a really useful thing to be a bit anxious about your work yeah and, and also presumably it puts you in a, um, a milieu with you know an environment with other practitioners with other clients with other institutions with students at lots of different ages that is only healthy right that you know you 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 don't design purely for men in their late 30s early 40s that actually you know (laughs) you design for society and universities are perhaps in some ways though someone told me off for this you know a social condenser but actually there's lots of different people who meet in these places yeah and certainly at kingston i think the net work of teaching practice is really good because there are people at lots of different stages so that's been that's been really really useful actually and I think it's I think it's quite good to have that kind of outsider viewpoint so we'll teach we'll be down the pub with perhaps younger colleagues and they're like well how did you do this and how did you do that and we're thinking I don't know yeah yeah some of that's luck and some of that's an accident yeah but then equally we're kind of asking questions of how they've managed to achieve something or how ma- how they managed to be so rigorous when we're slightly frustrated that we have to make lots of compromise. Or So I think it, it is yeah. a school of architecture is a school for everybody in that yeah. sense. And it's, it's kind of great to be embedded in that. And there's a real kind of, in the process of things, you know, if you listen to someone speak, you kind of want to, you kind of want to know, how did you get that break? How did you get that project? How did that happen? What led to that? And then things, you know, if someone gives you 20 finished buildings that are 
or beautiful and you're kind of going through that but it's all that discussion about the process and how you go from say one scale to another and one project or one client and I think that that it's like working models there you will stand and look at a working well I will I'll stand and look at a working model for ages and just walk around it and look at it and try and understand more about it and whereas if you have a completely finished piece it, there's nothing left for you maybe to take away from it you know it's done for you so I think it's kind of and, and process is something that we're again it comes back to the kind of seam of teaching and, and the fact that we don't just finish after five five years at university and then you do professional qualification there's that's just the beginning you know it's just base point and then from there you kind of other things are going to grow and maybe you're stronger at certain elements than others but it's really rewarding when you're kind of continually having these discussions and you know there's things happening and you're learning about you know architects practices and someone reveals like oh what about this or have you looked at that and and how and how does the state of education in 2019 reflect how is it in relation to when you were educated when I was a student, there were 25 students in the whole year, I think, 28, something like that. Um, and we had two tutors, both in twice a week, so we had four contact days or something like that. Um, so that is a, is a kind of world apart that I, I feel like Kate and I are here one day a week and we kind of fly through and you, it's, um, it's intense as, as a... Um, as a tutor, when you sit with twenty students and you, you you try and kind of give each one something during the day, they, they, it's a kind of it's an exhausting experience. I mean, the other I suppose that's the other side that I feel um, is quite interesting about teaching as a practice is that I partly feel that um, Kate and I have this kind of crazy day where we talk to twenty people, but it's you're helping them kind of curate their project without being too. Um, forceful we don't like to impose we don't want all their projects to look like something that might be from our practice we obviously want a kind of dialogue or a, a conversation with the work of the practice and work of the teaching studio but it does sometimes feel like you're um you've got a really big office and you've got 20 extra projects on i don't know and i think it's actually a really useful kind of discipline because you sit down they they talk for five or ten minutes and you're sort of trying to kind of um absorb a week's work um and then actually instantly there's this expectation that you can just kind of say, what about this or what about that? And, and it, I think that's another aspect that's helped kind of how we develop projects in the practice, that you, you kind of hone those skills. I think it's a shame that, um, I guess the other thing that I remember from college is we each had a desk and that was our desk mm. all day, every day. So there's a really lovely you have a studio drawing board. board. Or a desk. Yeah, I had a drawing board. I had a drawing board. <laughs> it was 1942. Drawing board. <laughs> yeah, no, I had a drawing board. We didn't really... I think for my master's, a lot of people were using computers, which would have been 1990, 20 years ago, 1998, I think. Yeah. Um, and I deliberately didn't, because I thought, though, this is the last... It felt like the last great push with pens and pencils that from, from then on in I would be in work and I'd be expected to produce CAD drawings. So I did a kind of hand-drawn hand in. It was a kind of overlaid over some printed stuff. But um, 
that start the tracing paper and you turned it on the other side and you get the the kind of block out the colours and bring yeah, that on. Trying to think, yeah. Oh, I loved all that. <laughs> Letter setting for hours. <laughs> it's brilliant. Come back. But I mean, they're still the first years here still learn to draw by hand, and so they have the uh, they have their drawing boards. Not you know, and they yeah they're expected to learn orthographically because it slows them down and it makes them understand what a line is and how to deal with a hierarchy of space in the orthographic. Yeah, I think I think that's really key. I mean, yeah. we um, I've always hand drawn a lot, so I have lots of slightly intense. Um, little mini sketchbooks but that I now look up back upon and that's a really nice kind of resource to have and we get slightly grumpy with our students if they expect us to look at something on a screen it's got to be printed and ideally they've got to actually because you just can't I think there's a kind of slightly turgid thing about CAD that you click start and you know exactly where the end point is for that line before you've actually hit go you kind of know where the finish line is whereas with a pencil it's a kind of much looser more exploratory thing that it, it's just so much faster to kind of develop an idea yeah. and not get bogged down in kind of zooming in and zooming in and zooming in and refining something at kind of one to one when you actually don't really know about the and there's always that moment where you, something's been created on the screen and then it gets printed and then some, you know, it either ends up on the desk at work or, you know, in the studio. And there's always a thing of, ah, oh, well, it hasn't quite, it's not quite as good as it was on the screen. Well, it's, it's, the printer's let me down or something's gone wrong here. And it's like, I, what you have in front of you is what's going out the door. That's the piece of information that we are going to present. So the process of getting there with the tools you want to use to do it are to help you. And they're not to kind of end with oh well it wasn't quite as good you know there's process obviously but I think that's why when you sketch to represent or you sketch to solve a problem you know you're doing for me it's one of two sometimes it can be one of two things sometimes it's kind of more fluid but you're kind of looking at well what am I doing with this information am I producing something to get a point I think the way I mean lots of people are now practice draw I think the way that the two of us draw is quite revealing yeah. so Steve draws with a felt tip very neatly and will always colour in the walls solid black very carefully yeah. there's a very sort of careful controlling thing where I will do all sorts of kind of much more yes you're a lot looser and I think that's partly what's ha- that's partly how we work in our practice that um Steve will often sort of begin a project by doing a plan which actually defines lots of parameters because you like rules and clarity and I do I like to move forward (laughs) and a program yeah I'm always trying to slow things down but then I always see it as a challenge it's like well yeah it's not going to be that house though is it so we have to kind of flip the plan yes so there's a sort of um there's no real... Well, the first draft of anything, shit, it doesn't really matter what you do, is it? I mean, you know, that's just pen to paper and let's move. And I think that that's a kind of... It's really interesting because you start to... You start to see what skills you have and what you can bring to the table in, a, in, a, in an office. And, you know, with that process of, well, let's put it on the table and see what is going to happen. And then we start to talk about it more and that process of it starts to reveal itself I think for me it's it's brilliant because it has taught me to slow down more and think and discuss and kind of reevaluate certain elements and then it goes again I mean we were talking about 
a point where you, you come out of a planning situation, you get your planning permission and you do your work and start to look at the next part, the work, the detailed design development. And usually we've been quite fast-paced with certain projects, but there's kind of this thing of, well, actually, we need, still need to develop the design. We still need to go, we still need to draw a lot in this process, and we need to think more and more about how this is going to develop through the process tectonically or, you know, spatially more. And We've set parameters. I think in the early days of our practice, we, we were really keen that we built... So anything that we thought this one's going to get built, let's more to make sure we really make sure this doesn't yeah. get killed. I think sometimes architects try to get a bit too much into a building and they can kill it through cost and complexity. And we did a few early houses which were quite conventional cavity-walled houses, but they demonstrated to a set of clients that it's like, actually, this is a kind of reliable pair of hands. Hopefully still not an, an interesting pair of hands, but we... We were quite kind of focused on that, and I feel like now we're perhaps growing a little bit about um, finding a kind of more personal direction. I think that's yeah. come out a little bit more in our work more recently. And I think as you get then recognition for that, you realise that you can kind of push it more and more. So we actually have clients coming to us now saying, well, I want it a bit like that one, but more. And you think, goodness me, this is this is licence for madness. Just be careful what you ask for. But, um, <laughs> I mean, and then we've got clients who are, um, we've got a very important client to us who's a kind of an American developer who has a very different um, mm. set of rules. And that is often about programme. We've had the most intense programmes with, with his project sometimes. But there is absolute clarity of instruction. And I think that that's what's been absolutely key to be able to kind of do yeah. that. And he doesn't... Um, if we're meeting how the kind of spreadsheet performs, there's a, there's a different level of trust in... He does not interrogate every architectural decision. And it's a really noticeable kind of cultural yeah. difference. It's like... I've employed you, I trust you, I like you, you're going to get on with this. And um, it doesn't attend any kind of meetings. And then at the end, we we go looking for feedback. Yes, yes, needy. just a little bit of, you yeah, know. So it's like, do you, do you actually like the building then? And we had, we did do, we were just like, you guys do handsome buildings. And that was it. It was, like, yeah. Great. Okay. Great that, considerable that's compliment. Yeah, no, that, that was awesome. But, um, <laughs> but sometimes through that process with him in particular, you sort of think, does he like it? Are we doing the right thing? And it, yeah. But it, but it is a. It's clear that it it's a kind of cultural difference. It's like, well, you're my architects, and you will do this, and you do this on my behalf, and you represent me well. And um, I get. I suppose perhaps some of our other clients are people that want to build a house and they'll live in that house. So you obviously have a kind of more kind of fine grained level of conversation. But just this this kind of slight sort of distance and a physical distance because they're based in New York um, but a kind of cultural distance as well it's like you're doing the job on my behalf thank you and and there's always a, 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 a we don't really have that much time when we meet with the, with the client you know it's not like there's on those projects yeah no. yeah and, and, and so we there was a very early moment where we realised that if we took anything that was more than one page of A4 um, to talk about and discuss, then there was too much. You know, the, what are the key things that you know? And the client would say, "What do you need from me? You know, and what? Where are we going next with this? And what's the program? What's the deadline?" And it became a very, it, it became a very 
educational, interesting process with that client because you, you all of a sudden had to focus and you had to think and, and think, right, okay, well, what do we need to sum up here and what do we need? Because there's so many things going on, as you guys know. It's like, you know, before weeks since we last met the client and a lot's happened. So then you take that in. It goes back to the kind of the crit when you get fifth, fifth, five minutes. Eight minutes? Yeah, to present. That's it. And you're putting a lot of work on the wall and you've got to get through that and get the key points across. And I think that some people will say, oh, well, we talk about, you know, it was a two-hour meeting and we talked about this and talked about that. And, and it's that was just a different way of doing things for us quite early at a certain I think it's scale. Helped, it's meant that we've developed a kind of um, almost a different skill set for that client. Mm. So I think it, it's, it's really good because actually then we've had a couple of, British clients that are more similar, more perhaps more commercial, mm. where they've just kind of said, "We're going to go in this direction, and then I'll see you at the end." Practically, yeah. And on one, of, we did a series of houses for a sort of accidental developer, who was um, enjoyed architecture, but he didn't want to kind of steer it or curate it. He would just come to site towards the end and was just sort of, "Wow, can't believe this! You know, this has all happened, and how did you get this here?" And um, and then we've had more architectural developers as another set yeah. of clients we've had two or three architects that we've built developments for or people that are very architecturally informed our land at, for the red house where the there was a kind of different level of conversation i mean i think we've been quite lucky with clients in the last five years we've had three or four that sort of have helped transform the trajectory of our practice to a degree and 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 what has that meant that you work slightly differently with them? Do you, unlike the single page A4 and the spreadsheets across the pond, does it mean that you have more time to make models or to think and talk to the client or the you know, local authority or whatever? I think what happens with that client is we have, we have these very in, uh, intense 30 minutes of clarages uh, where we have this kind of, okay, what's going on, guys? This, this is, you know, update me, and it's bang, 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 bang. And then he'll um, he'll connect us up with the next set of people that we might need to go to. Um, so that that's all that almost feels like a slightly separate role that we do. Yeah. And then the his projects have tended and they're growing into things that are incredibly complex. So that's the client for White Triple Bell Foundry. Um, so there's a very beautiful listed building, but then they've also bought the adjacent sites. So there's a sort of big, significant new building next to the, a rather lovely listed building. Um, so the that's been an absolute um, education to us. When we first got that project, we were a bit anxious that we weren't qualified for it, so we went and surrounded ourselves by really good consultants actually yeah. in that field, and that's been really helpful. So it's kind of odd that we've had hundreds of meetings um, on that project with all the sort of various heritage stakeholder groups, yeah. a, a whole raft of kind of uh, a succession of kind of planning meetings, um, historic England, obviously. And, but then the clients here once every four or six weeks and he just kind of wants that compressed into. So it, it's really, it's quite a strange project because we've got this kind of, um, we have endlessly long meetings where we have kind of great narratives about why the building is like it is. or And then we go the next day when our client's over, it's like, what's happening? Okay, how does that impact program? 
okay and then you know how does that impact cost and where are we and who's who's doing that next and do you need any support from me okay thanks I'll see you in a month and it's we're desperate to talk about more of the narrative thing yeah, is it well then this and then this is happening and that and then sometimes there's a bit of yeah yeah I know you're doing that I trust, <laughs> I trust you to do that you know you're going to you know you're, you're good at that so but um, and then I suppose with I mean we we have, we have one client who we've done three projects for and and they're kind of garage sites in South South London and that was the stuff that Will was kind of alluding to uh, earlier where we did a couple, we did a house uh, it's kind of a fairly traditional build and the client said look I have a garage site and I just want to get planning permission for one house on there and we did some of the early feasibility stuff and and again I think. We met um, Kerry by a little bit of luck. Um, I, I, I kind of I quite like the stories of those things. So he, Kerry walked his dog past Steve's first self-build. So Steve's done two self-builds. Um, I'm about to start one, uh, which I think is also a useful thing for clients because I think why wow, you, you've paid the bills and you understand kind of you know, what it is to pay for a building. Um, he, he walked his dog past your first house and then yeah. the following weekend I think it was in the Guardian yes and he just rang us up and said you've managed to get a house on that strange triangular site I've got a strange site I'd like you to look at yeah and then we met him first time and then he suddenly started almost spilling out all yeah, he, got, yeah he, he, he came in and then he's talking about this one site and then and then just as he was leaving and we said okay well we'll put together a scope and you know we'd love to do the project and so on and we'll be in touch tomorrow uh, and um, and just as he was leaving he said oh yeah because he said I've got a, I've got some more garage sites I'll, I'll put the kettle on <laughs> come, come sit back sit down let's see what else you've got in there and I think we've done three or four four projects but he's an absolute accidental developer yeah. he bought them thinking that they were a kind of pension income um, and the final one we're doing and finishing in a month or so he's actually going to move into which yeah. is kind of quite nice that he's actually going to live in one of them yeah so I feel like we're talking and there's no chance for questions. No, it's good. I'm Sorry. enjoying it. Um, I was just thinking as you were talking, this um, strangely shaped site typology, this is so much of what begin, you know, London architects at the beginning of their practice, this is what there is for us to tackle. You know, I'm also neck deep in strange site typology. Yes. Um, and thinking about that in our earlier conversations about process, I know for... Um, my partner and I, one of the ways that we really try to interrogate these problems is always through model, and I think that's something that you're also very interested in, especially working at a quite large scale as mm. a way to try and unlock these possibilities. Yeah, I think we've, I think that's kind of developed over the last five, six, mm. six years. I mean, again, it's finding, it's putting it into that, into the process of the work and where. Where you know when you start, we were saying earlier, you know, we start maybe with a plan or a diagram, a sketch, and there are some parameters, and where are we heading with this? And then it's like, okay, because the site is triangular or it's kind of wedged in somewhere spatially, it's kind of okay. Well, now we need to start thinking about where the volume of this building is, and there are certain moves that have been made through simple models. Sketching, I mean, you're endlessly sketching away and thinking about that, and then it starts to layer, I suppose. I think we always start from quite a conventional point because we, um, I think we are quite dry in that sense because mm. we, we're absolutely just focused on the planning process. So we don't sort of start with an idea that we're trying to impose upon the site. We think, 
what's a realistic thing. Are those those difficult gap sites are really you're imposing you're often building a house where nobody expects there to be a house and I feel like we've done 12 20 yeah Yeah. at least 20 Um, trying to guess the number you were going to come out with (laughs) 200 Um, and they're they're kind of awkward things but they do often lead to solutions so red house I suppose because people tend to know it we started with you did a plan which was almost the kind of the Victorian typology the house next door uh, but the ha- the site was so peculiarly shaped we kind of worked out well if we push that offshoot off to one side and then we kind of cut a hole here then we can have a kind of we can have much more privacy for the people that will live in the house but actually it means that the the small back garden of that house isn't embedded amongst everybody else's back garden so it kind of protects everybody else's amenity and we I mean, that house, I think, it was about to be refused. There was another scheme yeah, where it was purchased was, yeah. for a bit under 100 square metres, and yeah. the actual house is 140 square metres. So it it looks kind of quite dinky on site when you see it, but it's a three-storey house. You drop down half a level, and yeah. it's, it's quite intensely wrought, I suppose, but I think that's the, the thing with those difficult sites, to get much on them. Um, they end up being slightly expensive to build because you're pushing and pulling the kind of volumes around and that possibly works for a kind of a difficult London site I suppose in other bits of the country more straightforward sites are still available but there's only this kind of weird London pressure where we're trying to squeeze a house into every side garden Um, but I suppose then in terms of the the tension in the plan of the building or the tension in the section and because there is you're down to the last millimeter <laughs> everywhere you're looking then the kind of thing that we were talking a little bit about or started to earlier about the looseness of things about the way we're slightly different in the way we work or think then it through kind of getting that plan in place and that strategy and that kind of early diagram and then starting to look at it much more in, in, in the section and much more around how those levels would work Come, you go down a metre when you come in the front door and, and the front door area it's, it's, it's complicated in that there are a number of things coming together in a small amount of space so that's where you start to kind of have other things and the model happen. is key for, to kind of work that out isn't it I mean I think my kind of frustration sometimes with the models that we make or the ones that then appear is that they we start off and they're relatively scruffy and then they get kind of adjusted and adjusted and by the end of it they look like they're only ever presentation models and of course we photograph them fairly carefully and then we photoshop over the gaps uh, <laughs> because they're not quite as immaculate when you see them in the studios as opposed to on, online yeah. um, so sometimes we're always it's kind of nice to show a bit more process and I think what hap- we don't really have models which I feel we've got a few which are a bit kind of scruffier and actually look like we've worked something out I think it's kind of sad that most of them look like they're just kind of we've hit the end of the line so now we make the model and that's yeah. not necessarily true on all projects no Red House model is the last model I actually made he is isn't yeah it? I'm kind of sad about that I yeah. didn't really quite get to embed myself in that anymore I really like making models, but it's you end up. I don't know. You lose the fun stuff, don't you? I yeah, guess I still yeah. draw a lot, yeah. but it ends yeah. up in the hands of kind of part one. Yeah. I spend a lot of time saying, "How long? How much longer? <laughs> really? <laughs> really?" And that's just to me. 
But maybe maybe when we move into our new um, our new studios here, our new building here, maybe we should have a every you know unit should bring one of their own working models. Maybe mm. we should have an exhibition of working models. That'd exhibition, be very nice. yeah, exhibitions of sketches are very always very popular. Yeah, but you know. Yeah. Why not? It would yeah. be fantastic to see some. There was there was we're downstairs at the moment trying to organise the first year work, and someone in the corridor had put a very very rough model, and I thought, bring that back into the room. I think this should maybe you know the one that says roof part one on it, <laughs> yes. roof two B on the outside. But I think maybe you know I think I think people's parents as well as you know people further up the school should always be reminded of. Um, that working process to some extent it's very difficult to show and it's never linear I think we're only uh, obviously today we're working out what goes in the exhibition so we've decided we're don't, going to do a skip in the corner <laughs> not a very big skip but there the, we only because we noticed all the students had salvaged all of their models not certainly not all of their models but quite a lot uh, so there were kind of three or four versions of things which you recognise in succession so we're not going to arrange them carefully we just thought we're going to have this pile in a little box in the corner so you can just look in and see <gasps> the bin it's actually all the hard work what can work. you get out of there it's can all... you pull something good out <sighs> will it film one of our sites um, <laughs> so because actually that's all the, the, you know all the work is going to be in this kind of one's cubic meter bin in the corner of the exhibition that's where all the time is and then on the walls are the kind of the last few weeks really rather than the blood sweat and tears and the cut fingers the scalpel injuries of the last nine months or however on the year I think also just on on that side of doing things if people if you brought models different stages and uh, from a presentation model right back to an early kind of well how's that going to fit in with a beam and a wall and so on and I think also for students and definitely for me when I'm looking at certain things on a project it's like you don't you feel that okay yeah that's more in the process and maybe we should look at doing things like that and I don't feel that there's a barrier I feel that ah I can make that model and I feel empowered to make that model. I think what would be good as well is um, I remember one of the one of these interviews was with Gathber and um, they talked about having to make models out of proper solid materials because they have a very damp cold studio and if they didn't yeah, then they, wouldn't, yeah. they just wouldn't last and we Steve has friends who work in grown up adult large successful practices and they emailed us recently and said could we come and look at your model studio to we, you know, we want to get more into making models and process models could you come and look at our studio and it's like well just a desk. We don't we don't have machinery. Oh, I think what we we only have foam board and paper. Yeah. And, and YooHoo. Yeah. And I think we would love uh, a better space where we could have, begin to have a few tools. But I think that would be kind of quite a nice difference that you'd imagine. I imagine yeah. some people how the models are made from practice to practice, from student to student, will be very kind yeah. of different. And, and it, it sort of shows you that you only need a little corner with a cutting mat and you can make quite a large, neat model if you've got the kind of yeah. persistence to kind of dig in and do it. Yeah. We don't have bandsaws, we don't have laser no. cutters. I mean, no. we're kind of interested in those things, yeah. but they're just not within our reach in terms of space or money, really, at the moment. Yeah, so yeah, I mean, just being careful. Day, that when we're growing up. Well, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, there, and, you know, you don't get someone and they've used spray paint and they've got it all up their jeans and kind of the wind changed direction when they were out in a car we park do have, we do have a good flat roof which is useful for that stuff don't we, <laughs> we do a bit of fresh air yeah. like the risk assessment 
Yeah, no, we, we use the clerk work, and yeah. so it's the, kind of the constant threat that you might be moaned at. Yeah. Yeah. It's worth it. Um, I was going to ask about, you talk about, yeah, the grow, you know, grown-up or when you guys, what, what, so what's next for 3144? Where, where do you, you know, the past, say, five or six years, you noted have been a particular trajectory. What happens in the next five or six years? I think, um, I think we're anxious about that. Thanks yeah. for bringing it up. Yeah. Um, because I think there's almost this sense, it's, you feel the pressure to get the next thing, don't you? And I suppose we look at the Bell Foundry project, and the Bell Foundry has an art foundry, um, a, a founder that currently has the licence to cast Whitechapel Bells, uh, a series of artist studios, and a kind of public cafe, and... Um, a kind of set of interpretation spaces. I mean, the making of the bells in that building is embedded throughout it. So you'd be able to wander in as a member of the public, non-fee paying, and wander through and see how bells were made in that building. And then next to that, there's uh, a building with a restaurant, a restaurant on the roof, a swimming pool on the roof, a yeah. hotel in the middle. And we're looking at that project thinking, we'll get one of these in our lifetime. You know, yeah. with... And, I, th- I just think that's the kind of reality for architects. You might get... I remember when we all met at um, the company called Procter & Matthews and during my part one, I did a barn conversion and then started work on a house um, next to a grade one listed tithe barn, next to the church, next to the manor house um, in, in a village called Haddenham. And I remember Steve Procter and Andrew Matthews in, at saying, we'll only get one of these in our lifetime. You know, you don't get to work on sites like this, and it's really stuck with me. And I was sort of thinking, oh yeah, it's it's hard to know what kind of comes next when you yeah. do something like that. I mean, you desperately hope you get kind of more of the same, don't you? Get you do something that's ridiculously complicated and it takes a bit of a kicking through the kind of process, and you sort of become a more robust architect. And you hope that you get another one of those that somebody thinks, oh, they've managed to kind of put all of that together, so they could do the same for me. But I'll. I guess you can't worry about it, but our worry is uh, that 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 won't happen. That actually will end up doing kind of ordinary buildings on side streets again. But I don't know. We're we're pretty happy at the moment. We really like yeah. the one-off house thing. I think that those are really useful um, kind of projects to do for practices at any scale. And I think it's interesting that you look at big practices or successful design practices, and they're still engaged with one-off houses. They might be a bit fancier. Um, as well as their kind of mega museum projects, uh, I don't really see us doing the mega museum. No, I think we're no, not. Well, I mean, we do if, so, if someone's got one. You know, I'd say no. Yeah, it's a call. But, but um, quite like the the sort of difficult the two or three things that we've done in and around Redchurch Street. That's been really enjoyable because mm. those are difficult sites mm. and it's a conservation area. There are kind of listed buildings nearby. They've been but and. They're sort of in the public domain, whereas when you do a house, it's very hard people to get people in them and to actually yeah. kind of, for them to kind of understand. And there the is you've gone through, whereas when it's there and you can go in it, then it's so it's things that are still. I think the interesting, public. yeah, and the interesting thing in terms of s- scale of project and involvement, day to day involvement in 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 the project, I think that we've gone from that you know the the projects the project that we just finished last year on Redchurch Street which was an extension of the first part we did of 58 which is the old all press coffee 
uh, shop building and then we've done the, the extension to that or the next part next door so that completed last last year I think it was last year mm. and um, and that's you know the second part was a, a, a value of about 9 million quid and it's about 1,500 square metres and it just gives you an idea of the size and scale and and so and we'd been doing houses before that are about half a million quid and, and you know were, but the process of going from one scale to the next felt very natural um, for for us as a studio. We didn't go to a three million for well, I suppose the first part of Red Church Street was about three million, but then it's quite a jump. Um, and then now that we're working on the foundry, which is that's yeah. a significant jump again. Yeah, isn't it? and 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 again we're working through. They all feel like the same process, yeah. though I suppose, and I think that's the. I guess what we when we put buildings together we we kind of interrogate the kind of the local building culture or some small detail in the context um hateful word that we've found and then it almost kind of exploit that not to kind of sound cynical but I, I think we like the idea that our buildings are made of things that are kind of familiar and that people actually are kind of quite comfortable with that. And then we, there might be some move that you make which makes them slightly more kind of pushing into the foreground than a completely kind of backgroundy building made of you know completely ordinary materials. We want to kind of disfigure and distort that ordinariness. Um, but I think it, that kind of approach has meant that we've just managed to scale that up on those kind of more urban projects. Yeah. We kind of thought, well, this is... It's a kind of post-industrial back street, but it's going to be the front door of a hotel. So there's a nice language between a kind of slightly civic warehouse, like you might have found on this back street, and actually that being the front door to a hotel. So we've kind of tried to look for things like that. So it, it felt quite natural, kind of scaling up. Yeah. I mean, the other thing we really want to do in the next few years is actually not only work in Britain, I yeah. suppose. We did a house in Amsterdam when... Um, we had our kind of Dutch office, um, and we've actually been approached recently by practices in Ghent and Antwerp, yeah. and actually the potential of working in France. France so we're trying yeah. to kind of get back into our beloved Europe. So you, you see a very positive <laughs> relationship between Britain and Europe in the years to come. We do, because I think we're relatively optimistic. Well, we are. Officially, yeah. we're optimistic. You should hear us in the office. Um, yeah, I... Yeah, I yeah. have to, otherwise I'm yeah. going to get yeah. and have a breakdown. Mm. <laughs> and I think, again, in terms of uh, the, going back to the question, we don't really give sure answers, do we? Uh, it, it's, I suppose, to do with this project, the scale of the project, you know, and kind of a process and the way we're working. I think we've all, and personally, you know, the, the, the trajectory from over the last seven, eight years, um, as for me has been just incredible going back and revisiting certain things in kind of your reading and I don't read that much but you know I look a lot and uh, and and just that kind of way that we talk about things in the studio and the making of things and I think that that allows you to get it allows you to make more informed decisions or have a little bit more confidence with your decisions in terms of where the project is going and the, and the, and the client or the client group or the individual client and where that's kind of sits in the, in, in, in the practice. So 
Yeah, I don't think the scale of things, you know, would... I think I'd like to... If things got any bigger, then we'd want to collaborate. Yeah. I just... Um, yeah. I think... That I I don't think we we didn't really we didn't all meet at college and say we're going to change the world and have a practice together and you know just some big kind of push into some hideous yeah. idea of what a practice could be. It's just, that's just not. We're not going to be fifty strong in no. like you know two years. <laughs> that expression when people say oh we're hundred strong. It's like, you're talking about an army. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a strong word about. Um, but we we kind of like our team we feel like we've been very kind of fortunate so we do um a lot i hope to kind of make them feel really embedded in the practice because i think we'll never grow if if people keep kind of if people get fed up and move on i mean that's a kind of i think that's a disaster for a practice yeah your kind of people are your kind of key asset um and i think it's partly embedded we didn't want to be blah and blah architects we didn't we, I guess I was, we'd worked for a kind of firm where you could kind of turn up at a meeting and somebody would sort of see it almost look at you and think, well, you might be an associate or an associate director, but you're not a main partner. There was a little bit of a sense of that. So we that's partly why we have, on reflection, a slightly silly name. Um, but it was describing the kind of the starting locations of when we first set up. So we kind of um, set up, it's a long story that I won't go into, by accident. So I was in London and a kind of good friend, James, was based in Amsterdam. So we thought, well, we don't want to be named after us, so we'll name it about location. So 31 being Dutch code and 44 being the UK. Um, and it, we hope that kind of then set the tone for a kind of really inclusive practice so that people could really, they didn't feel like they had to na- add their name to the list like a kind of big law firm. Um, and that it wouldn't really matter who there's no big grand identity and I think it's because we don't have I didn't want to always be the person going to a meeting or the person that everybody goes to for answers or I mean I don't know how people do that no. as, a, as a kind of practice it must be utterly exhausting and really stressful and you must have to be extraordinarily confident and I just don't we're not those kind of people so it's quite nice that we have a really smart set of people that ask each other a lot of difficult questions in the process and we're just keen that they kind of grow and grow with us and don't ever, don't ever leave. So <laughs> it'd be terrifying. If you're listening. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this is going to be stuff with using pay rises. <laughs> Good. <laughs> but it's, I mean, it's true. Design is a collaborative activity. And I think to sort of to foster that in practice is only a way to strengthen mm. what yeah. it is you're doing. Yeah. And I think that maybe in the last year maybe a little bit more because maybe the Bell Foundry project is stretching you in your kind of out of the comfort zone you know there's so much going on with the building and the process and so people ask questions you know when we're discussing things and I think there's always a slight you know if I, if either of us say we don't I don't know I don't know what the it's answer is it's almost this look of shock isn't yeah. it it's like well, I don't know I'm going to have to work it out I with don't you. know yeah yeah it's well, like there's not a one stop shop for yeah. answers on architecture yeah. what did we do first and then what do we need to look at next and you know how's one thing going to how's this thing going to stack and how are we going to get out of this problem uh, or how are we going to resolve this front door and and then you start to talk more about that process you know and and so it can be anything from agonising over the balustrade 
or then heading out the door to go and speak to a potential new client you know all that stuff is happening but it's I think because we're at that point where we've got different scales of projects and at different stages then you kind of maybe we feel more now comfortable saying well I don't, I don't know what the answer is you know let's Let's think about that um, some more. <laughs> I think it's that thing as an architect, isn't it? You just don't, you don't, as, as a career, it's not like you take your next exam and that means you can be detective superintendent. Yeah. Um, you can't just keep notching up. You have to kind of scrabble your way around and sort of work out how to kind of get better things or more interesting work, not necessarily bigger, but just kind of hold on to the interesting stuff. And it, it's a, I think it's a difficult difficult thing to kind of grasp when you first leave college actually that you don't because you're so used to kind of well I've achieved this I've done my GCSEs I've done my A-levels I've done a foundation course however you've got there you have these kind of regular rewards and then suddenly you're just cast out into this very difficult thing where you've just kind of got to try and set yourself on a nice trajectory and hope that it's slowly creeping upwards but it's not there won't be significant milestones, really, where you think, yep, that's the next thing done. It's just... Yeah. I suppose that goes back to the thing of, where does the practice go? You know, so we're quite prepared for the... Um, for things to not be in a, in, a, in a straight line moving up to 40,000 feet and cruising. And it, it's, you know, <laughs> there are going to be recessions along the way. There are going to be changes to certain ways of working etc and to kind of just accept that you know and, and then to think well let's keep working on certain you know we'll, we'll work through this project and then we'll kind of be thinking you know we do now have spreadsheets and we do try and be more grown up about what's happening in six months time and what's happening next year and so on and what's happening tomorrow because someone keeps asking me that they need something to do and it, it's kind of that thing of well you're at those all those different time scales um but I think that us and then everyone in the, in the office, it becomes, everyone gets more involved in that process and it isn't that you're just being fed stuff. So you kind of think, you know, if you're at a bigger practice, there are more rules, I suppose. Um, and, and whereas we're kind of looking at a number of things happening, different projects, different scales daily, so... There's no QA documents then. Well, there are. Oh, yeah, 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 when we fill yeah, out the PQQ, of course there yeah. are. Yeah. Don't try and trip us up. <laughs> I hope they're listening. <laughs> no, I mean, so what about, what about, audit. What about projects where um, the resolution can't happen with something, a manufacturer, like the balustrade? You know, we can resolve it by talking to the client or the users or the material manufacturers or the subcontractors or the you know, the QS, who might say, I've not got money for that, lads. Um, what about things like, you know, the Alternative Histories exhibition that you guys were a part of with Drawing Matter? How do you, how do you, do you take the same approach as you would? Um, we gave it a project number, so we had to, <laughs> yeah. so uh, in the sense that, I guess we've always thought that things like that, we don't, we've never really done competitions and I think we're probably now thinking we, we need to get into that. Um, but we've always sort, sort of seen those things that, well, if you don't, you have to kind of, I mean, it's completely left field 
um, exhibition that and we were just couldn't quite believe we'd made the list really um, thank you Marius and um, but we so, so to kind of make sure it happened we did give it this kind of side project we made it kind of exist in the office as a thing it's like well, somebody's got to spend yeah. some time on that yeah. and we did did we subject it to the same process I think um, well it was quite a weird process to begin with wasn't it so we were giving a, a William Butterfield drawing of a house which we sort of knew of that exists so it was hard not to go and look at what that actually was in reality and it was it kind of seems to be on and off the market so it's really easy to go online and see what it really does look like um, and it was effectively built for what was Britain's wealthiest family when Butterfield did his work on it it bolted onto a kind of much older house so this idea that we were working with Butterfield but we were thinking goodness me what would that mean now if you're doing a house for Britain's wealthiest family that would be truly offensive so we did in a way we sort of thought well Butterfield's stuff is kind of slightly brutally brash um, and perhaps there was this so we did try and kind of the way that we approach any project mm. is to kind of sort of draw out the essence of its immediate kind of um, cultural context and thought well if we're going to kind of push this kind of notion of a kind of brutally brash architecture then what do we end up with so we took things um I guess to use another a sort of similar example, we've we've got consent for a really nice house in conservation area in South London, where we found kind of fragments of the of listed buildings that we really really liked, and then we kind of shifted their scale and we kind of reassembled this house, so it's completely made of its street, but it's a, a slightly peculiar house, I suppose, on first kind of um, when you first kind of approach it. Um, and we did the same with the kind of Butterfield drawing. So we took things that were elements, just uh, a pattern of the diapered bricks, and we turned that into an element of the plan, and we changed the scale of it. So we said, well, anything new that goes into the plan is kind of out of Butterfield's kind of ornamentation, but then the scale is shifted, and then it's kind of extruded. And So we did, in design terms, we approached it kind of like a, any project in the yeah. office, in terms of how we allocate time and it meets the spreadsheet then we sort of there was no fee income but we did kind no. of treat it like a kind of real and I think project, that, I guess and I think that is it sounds very simple but giving it the job number and making it sit on the on, on the shelf with all the other projects they now become more of a, a collection of things that are happening and some are influencing others mm. and therefore when you try and just think oh well we'll just do this one in the evening or if we're going to do that competition it's got to be on the weekend we've never done that because we do a competition and as Will said we haven't we haven't really done many at all um, but it's the thing of well if we if we go and we and we and we go for something or pitch for something it's because we want to kind of learn something from that process at this stage we can't do and I just don't think it's in the way we are. We can't do it to then resent I mean, the process because we don't get it because there's 200 entries. It's because we get grumpy about it. I mean, also, team members are really keen to. I think there's a nice thing about doing a competition or something like the alternative history because there is a different kind of conversation and you're not, you're much less constrained, I guess, because mm. you sort of really think, well, we've got to question the brief and actually really um, perhaps try and win this through ignoring the brief or so I think there's a really good level of conversation in an office and I think it's there's a kind of purity to what you can put together because it's not actually there isn't a load of impacts upon 
a really rigorous, beautiful plan or something. It can just exist as a, as a really strong, rigorous piece of work. I think what would happen if we started doing that is we, we're quite stubborn about we work 9 till 6, 9 till 6.30, yeah. yeah. and we don't do weekends or anything. We've never never done that I no. very very occasionally if it's if there's a really tough deadline somebody comes in at the weekend but I think there, there's an appetite to do it in our office by my for the competition mm. thing but my worry is actually then that culture that kind of I think quite organised culture because it's architecture is a bit of a mess really in terms of relying upon people get working doing lots of unpaid overtime um, and it's offensive so I worry that if we did competitions, we'd suddenly find ourselves in the office on a Sunday afternoon. And I'm, I'm not kind of. I really enjoy architecture, but I want everyone to kind of make sure they have a life outside of it, because otherwise you start to resent your job and you'll go somewhere else. So, I think the whole competition yeah. thing is a is a bit. It's, it, 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 but in some ways, if we did, then we'd have to make sure that. It's given a job number and it's allocated mm. time. Yeah. So it isn't just done, okay, it's six o'clock now, everyone can start working on the competition. Yeah. Because that's just. Well, you've had it. Not fun. No, and you've worked all day and you know, you've been kind of exhausted from the process of going to site and doing everything else and, 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 and so on. And I think it's. Uh, it, I think that, especially with architects, you know, you just, the weekends you go out and see more architecture <laughs> and then, therefore that makes you think about things and then those that slower filtering process I think makes you better over a longer period of time and they're all more and thoughtful more about that alternative history I think we did we did apply a relatively usual process I think the thing that was nice was the context of the project was only the drawing mm. so we tried not to look at the house and we just sort of thought well we'll explode the we made a little kind of paper model of what we thought. We sort of knew what we thought the house <laughs> being described in one elevation was because it was a coloured drawing which was given a depth of tone, so we could kind of guess how far set back things were. So we did kind of explode it, and we made a couple of models along the way before we then actually made the kind of final model. And being part of the process and then going to the exhibition and walking around and seeing what how everyone else has tackled the same question with whatever they were image presented and how that then has been revealed and and that's that is as informative oh yeah i remember when we got our drawing i sort of thought no i don't really like victorian architecture that much it's a bit clunky isn't it and then and then i looked through the list and thought oh some people have got really kind of beautifully abstract drawings and then when it came to doing it, I just thought, oh, God, thank God we've got this really prescribed elevation <laughs> that has a very clear starting point. Mm. I mean, I still went around the exhibition and thought, oh, I really like some of these kind of ambiguous objects made, made by, I think Manadnot got a really nice Jim yeah. drawing. And, yeah. But I did kind of think, oh, God, if we got, it would have been much harder if we'd have to deal with something like that. And yeah. actually we had a kind of clear trajectory defined by the drawing, I mm. guess. Do you have any idea why Marius assigned you the drawing that he did? I think because um, because of Red House. I think because of this sort of you know this sort of toying with Victorian mm. decoration, and I think he just was he definitely was with some of his choices matching up drawings to architects. He was just sort of poking us with a slightly sharpened stick to see well, how we would react to it. <laughs> yeah, and I think I that was a really <laughs> nice thing. So. Um, 
But Butterfield is not is a normal reference for you. Is it something because you know we we have actually talked quite a lot about you know Victorian solutions to, to problems in London. So is this is this is he one of your repertoire of Victorian architects? The, um, Kate's a big fan of Butterfield, um, especially St Margaret's. Uh, so she's actually brought Butterfield to the office because she's mentioned that a few times, and we've actually prior to um, the alternative the drawing that's the alternative history. Um, we've set that kind of threshold of St Margaret's as a, as a sort of precedent. Mm. So oddly, it is kind of present. It's weird how you realise these things kind of come around, isn't it? And, and I think also, I, I kind of, I think, at least there's, abs- there's kind of deep personality in some of that work. There's a sort of thing about, I feel like in the last 10 years, a lot of people remaking London have sort of said, oh, isn't the Georgian stuff best? It's like, oh, we don't need any more kind of smartly blunt neo-Georgian mm. housing, even if it's tastefully done. It's like, so I, I think we probably are looking at architects that have a bit more kind of punch and character and a kind of strong personality. I mean, obviously within Georgian architecture, there are some deeply characterful, beautiful things, but I feel like architects are kind of pulling back all the time and kind of not wanting to actually kind of make something slightly personal. And I think that mm-hmm. we are interested in actually thinking, well, this some of this is slightly eccentric, isn't it? Some of this is, you know, does have a kind of... Um, I think it forms for a good discussion as well, because I'm... Kind of quite. Uh, You're an old school modernist, and I'm constantly. We're always. <laughs> Kate's always kind of trying to prod and push you with something. Yeah. A bit, a bit crazy. Yeah. But it, what do you mean? But that that's great because there are certain things that now are on the table for me, and and there and I've moved away from certain other, you know, architects or periods and so on, and and I think that's kind of really interesting that we have that kind of discussion and you know we start to develop a proposal and then there was something recently where I was saying well you know is, is it rigorous enough I mean how have we you know what why are we going and, and you're saying well just loosen up a bit you know it just needs to be a bit looser in the way we're tackling that there. our office spends a lot of money on therapy for Steve and then, <laughs> it's one of our major arguments <laughs> and it, I mean I think it's it, it's the the kind of the the references are really eclectic, eclectic in our office. So um, personally, I'm a big fan of Mies, but equally, I'm a big fan of um, Lutchens, Palladio, uh, the Eameses, Soriano, Neutra, the case study housing program, all of that stuff. Uh, I kind of really love the optimism of those kind of houses, and so it's 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 kind of wild and all over the place, yeah. really. So the, there are bits of there are kind of strange things that, but I think I think that's with all architects. I mean, I think yeah. that's a kind of lovely yeah. thing about the kind of profession yeah. is and you can draw on so many things. You well, don't have to. And you think back to to when you were to when you were at college and then you know the, say the first three years of, of uni and, and and it was kind of like for me it was like I don't know Bernard Tashimi and Liebes Woods and well, God knows what and it's all coming out now well geez. I think we were both I, think I was early 90s you were later 90s yeah yeah you? 97 to, to, to 2000 and yeah. it was still the kind of t- t- corp was still being pushed really hard in yeah, lots yeah. of schools I mean it yeah. really was yeah this, this one included um, 
but at the same time, you did have yeah kind of deconstruction. And yeah, some yeah, much wilder things, and I yeah. think different schools went in different directions, and some were actually quite um, pluralistic, and you could get away with whatever you wanted mm. to. But yeah, yeah, Liverpool uh, Uni, where I was did my degree, was. I mean, I did, um, you know, our A-level and then went to uni. And, and for me, that was kind of fine because this first year was, and second year was still, like, I've no, been nowhere near a plan. It's kind <laughs> of like, wow. And, um, and, and, then it, and then it gets to the third year and then that we had a, a, a kind of a cheater called Barra. And I remember him just wiping the floor with the fact that I still hadn't produced a plan. And it, it was like... You see, that's an odd thing for me to even consider now. Yeah, and You're I all th- about the plan. Uh, yeah, and I think it's that's then wild. just that that what broke, happened. That he broke that you. that happened. That great <laughs> that that tutorial, and then and so you know you kind of there are certain things that you're looking at because you know it's a bit like having a music collection. You know, it's eclectic, and um, uh, but asking you know what what are you listening to now? You know, like. Uh, it, it varies, you know, and there's certain things, and there are certain like things that turn up on on your desk where you've got another thing, you know, buck ordered, and it's turned up, and it's quite interesting. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm, I'm, ooh, that's interesting. I wasn't aware of that. <laughs> we've we've got an office near the Whitehall Gallery, which is quite expensive. <laughs> so got a really beautiful bookshop, but. and 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 so so all of those things are continually revealing themselves, you know, and and, and I think that's. That makes for a really interesting process because you're not, you know, and going back to that thing, I remember we had a project at Liverpool and we were all given a one image, similar thing, and I got Michael Graves as a, as, and I just remember thinking, ah, oh, no, you know. It's just not my guy. It's not my guy. <laughs> uh, and um, and that was just quite funny that, you know, the, it's kind of what you do with with that you know information, and um, it's very interesting how over a small period of time, because you know you do a degree and then you work and then you're back in practice, things things are happening quite rapidly actually around you and the way you know you work for a year or you know two years or whatever, and certain you become obsessed then by the process of working and kind of you dive into that and you want to kind of immerse yourself in that. Then you've got to bring some of the stuff from before and not leave it all there and that comes. So then you start to develop and, uh, and that's probably, you know, then you start to become maybe more pragmatic like I did. <laughs> <laughs> the power of one crit, that's a kind of lesson to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it was quite a shame. You've got to be careful. He was, he was quite forceful about that. I needed to draw a plan. Yeah, I think we probably all have these memories mm. from our education of one turning point. I don't know, Will, do you have something? Um, I'm, I'm a sort of, I'm actually quite a lazy person. <laughs> so I always made sure I just did enough to make sure that I did all right. And um, I, I went to Brighton, but I went there because there was a family friend a couple of years older than me that had been to Brighton, and I went to visit and thought, it's a really great student town. I didn't really look at the architecture school, although at the time I met some really nice people and had really nice tutors, and I loved being in Brighton. Um, I, I suppose the turning point for me was I was actually then taught in my third year by Proctor and Matthews, which in a way only made me more lazy because I never had to. They then gave me a job for my part one, 
I never had to put a CV together. I never had to put my portfolio together and it just compounded my laziness. Um, but, and then I went back to do my masters in Brighton due to laziness <laughs> and a beachside town with lots of nice bars um, and good friends. I mean, you know, a lot of it is about the kind of people yeah. around you, isn't it? Yeah. And I think um, one of my tutors at the time, a lady called Julia Dwyer, sort of said, well, kind of go where you think you can get get away with the most you know you kind of want to define your own direction so don't go to a difficult unit based school where you'll get kind of bashed into a certain kind of um, system or thesis by a, a kind of overbearing tutor because that doesn't feel right for you go to somewhere where you so I kind of made up my own it was really nice you could kind of completely define your own thesis so I did a I took Pier 40 in Manhattan and put um a kind of farm on it. it was the late 90s um it'd almost be relevant now but uh, <laughs> oops uh but and then uh, yeah i suppose what was the turning point i think probably i'd hate to credit them with it but meeting proctor and matthews yeah because they, they gave me my first job um i worked there after my masters and they were kind of bosses but they also felt like really good friends and mentors and I had a very because I'd just known them for such a long time had a really good job and a really great relationship with them and we still bump, bump, bump into, into them, them and, yeah. and it's kind of good fun yeah. and they're still very present because we all met there they're still very present in our decision making so we kind of think well what does Stephen Andrew do we do the opposite <laughs> <laughs> not always <laughs> but um, yeah so actually the, I suppose the formative thing is that it got me my job and in nine I think when did I do my year out 1996 or something that was actually not very easy to get a job then so I was kind mm. of quite quite lucky really yeah yeah that kind of process of your degree and then and then finishing there was yeah f- I suppose for me when I did my diploma at Manchester University School of Architecture there um kind of a number of my friends, we all decided we weren't going to go back to Liverpool for one reason or another, and things had moved on in your year or two out. And um, and that kind of, as you say, in the, the city and and, and the, the people around you start to inform those decisions. And then Manchester University was kind of, um, our unit was continuity in architecture, and um, Dom, who was our tutor, was just brilliant. Him and Gary were just... And maybe that's kind of another point of where things started to kind of click. It was all like, we were like Aldo Rossi and stuff like that, that we were looking at. And I, at the time, because of the working in, uh, studying in Liverpool and then working for a year, this was all, this was all like a complete fresh page. Um, and then, you know, you start to immerse yourself in that process. And I kind of found that it seems not like the next natural thing to do in terms of the work and the things you're looking at and thinking about but it seemed it was and just the way they went about the the studio and even now there are similarities with the unit at, at, at Kingston and kind of the way it's structured and the kind of thought process of looking making drawing thinking about things and you know kind of taking that process forward so it, it became a lot calmer maybe than say Liverpool um, but far more kind of thoughtful in the process and the depth of the process um, and that was and there, and there was about 15 of us in our studio um, 
and everyone was kind of working together through those two years. It was kind of, that was a really good period. I mean, we have tend to have a couple of part ones in the office each year and they inevitably sort of say, oh, where should I go for my master's? And I, I kind of always think you should probably go where you'll be comfortable and happy because if you're a good student, you can do good work anywhere. But if you go and you actually, it's a completely different place and it's quite stressful and you've got a bunch of other things to deal with aside from just getting on with your work, yeah, it's quite a tough thing to do. And I know that perhaps is the lack of ambition in me on their part, but I kind of think actually sometimes sticking with your mates and going somewhere where there's a group of you going to the same school or going back to your old school, you start, you instantly start at a level where you kind of know the system and you know kind of where everything is you don't have to stress about oh my god where's the printer where do I get this bound I mean really boring things but it does take a lot of the sting out of your kind of master's life I mean definitely doing my master's was by far the I enjoyed that way more than degree yeah. it's so yeah. much more kind of satisfying to kind yeah. of when you first think, oh, I've been working for a year or two and now I have to go back to be a dirty student, this is not fair. I remember really resenting it, but as soon as you get going, it's like, yeah, this is kind of, it's a really great moment to kind of study architecture and the architecture masters is really good. And you, you bring some of the discipline back from the world of work. You do, you're so much You know okay. how to work, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, absolutely, you know, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, otherwise your undergraduate is just sort of desperately doing things in all directions in the hope that somehow you find your way to a solution but yes. by the time you've seen it being done in practice yes we're kind of closing the circle on our conversation you know that you've been acting out this thing and now you've seen it done for real and yeah it changes your yeah. approach yeah. for most people in a yeah. good way yeah and certain values are brought to the to the fore and then that's kind of really interesting time becomes a really yeah, I mean, good part one experience is really empowering when you go back, and all because I think that's really it's where you learn to where you start really learning about how to put a building together, and you go to site and you're just kind of utterly shocking that this precise drawing actually doesn't look like a precise drawing when it's bits of kind of polythene rubber and concrete and and it's yes, it's yeah. but it's it's kind of a really good thing, isn't it? You put my part one student on site and they kind of what this. This is that beautiful drawing I had to do in my bay elevation. It's like, but it's glued yeah, together. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, yeah, there's a gap there, so somebody just squeezed some glue in. Yeah, that's kind of mad, isn't it? As long as it's waterproof glue. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Cover the whole thing. Um, so as you, you both are um, avid listeners of the Register podcast, you know what the closing question is, and you've kind of already um, tangentially answered it, but I wonder if I... Put it to you, you might have something different to bring to bear. Um, what is the advice that you've had to have for a student studying architecture today? Mm. Would you like to go first? You mean you haven't prepared an answer? <laughs> <laughs> I was relying it's on you to have prepared an answer. <laughs> I, for me, I, I think, um, I think it's that thing that there aren't clear my, milestones when you move out of college, and actually, not to sound kind of a bit pessimistic about it but not to expect too much because it's just 
architecture doesn't happen like really kind of snap, snap, snap. You might, you'll go and you'll start to work on a building and that building might fall away for all sorts of reasons or it can take five years or eight years to, to be finished. And I think there's, it's, I think it's difficult for architects sometimes because you can look amongst your mates and think there's sometimes real career progression quite quickly early on and you might then peak or sort of plateau. But I think for an architect, it's such a kind of slow burn. You have to kind of get yourself in that mindset that when the first, you know, you start working, take a couple of years and then you'll do your part three. And then that's that's kind of it. Then you do that. That's the most horrid part of the whole process. And once it's done, you're kind of in this sort of endless wilderness where you think, okay, I've got 30 years. If I'm really lucky, I might do 10 buildings. Yeah, Yeah, but it might be four. And I think it's just trying to kind of manage that expectation. And actually, I think that's why architects talk so much about process, because you have to really enjoy the process to get satisfaction, not just about the end thing, but the kind of day-to-day that you're actually producing things constantly. Yeah, I think for me, I suppose there are two things. One is um, the just communication. Just that process of how you're going to communicate and how you are communicating, whether it's via sketches or... or that those are the skills they should yeah, get out of college. Yeah, and I think it's kind of a really... And, and it, it's just... It, it's an awareness. You know, I was told when I did my part one that communication is everything and, and how you're communicating that information uh, and, and the way, whether it's a question in the office... Uh, it's a quick sketch, it's a presentation for a big job. You know, you've spent months maybe getting all of this stuff to a certain point and then it's like, how is it being presented? How is it being communicated? And what happens if you're not there to talk about it? Can someone read that? Is it legible? And those sorts of things. And sometimes you've got to go up and present like the crit, but you're presenting to a new client and it's like, we don't know that client yet. So we, we, we there's no relationship um, so how are we presenting our idea, our kind of our personality, the way we work? You know, there's always those points where sometimes you're halfway through a project and you realise that maybe a client's way of thinking is, is is different, or that their kind of the way we see things is different. And so I think that that is is a is a is a skill that you'll just carry on developing. Um, and my other one, I haven't, I've managed the whole podcast without a football reference. Wow. Yeah. So, um, Alec, <laughs> Alec Ferguson said, hard, hard work's a skill. So, um, it's, um, yeah, I, I think I'd, I think that kind of process of kind of continuing to work through something. Because you have people that say, oh, I'm a good designer, you know, I'm, a, I'm kind of in that process of, or I'm good. It's like, it, that's great. It's a starting point. And it's like, then what do you do with it? And, and, and to have that kind of work ethic to kind of keep going back to something and re-looking at it. And it's not going to end, you know, with that one project or, you know, it's going to keep, you've got to keep that up and, I think that's kind of, I, I thought found that quite a simple thing. It's like, but quite a good ethos. You use the expression, that, and then you go again a lot in the office recently, I've noticed. And I think it is that thing. <laughs> yeah, I'm on the floor again. Stand up, keep running. And the, yeah, it's, it's that sort of long game 
tenacity that you need. Yeah. That was positive. Quite right. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you both very much. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Register. Please, you know, share the word uh, if you're enjoying what we're doing and do get in touch with your suggestions for people you'd like to hear speak uh, or with comments and suggestions for what you'd like to hear from us in the future. Before signing off, I would just like as ever to thank the other members of the Register team, Matt Wells, Matt Phillips, Christoph Luder, and of course, Laura Evans. I do hope you'll join us next time. Thank you. Bye.